0: Hey everybody, and welcome back to Cash's Corner. Jan, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to talk about you know nuclear threat from
1: Vladimir Putin. I think we need to cover that. Mm-hmm. Um, we've got whistleblower information. We've got a letter from Senator Grassley and Congressman Jordan from the judiciary committees of each, uh, uh, you know, the House and the Senate. We've got also this special just a little bit about the special master and the declassification issue. I definitely need to cover that. And finally, you know, Danchenko filing keeps on giving. So, (laughs) but what's that on your lap?
0: Well, Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. Thanks very much. So this week, Jan, we are debuting my new children's book, The Plot Against the King, part two, Thousand Mules. I'm sure the audience is familiar with Plot Against the King 1, which was Russiagate for kids and adults, and it did so well, we did a sequel. So we'll tell you a lot more information about part of Plot Against the King 2 um, that I partnered with Dinesh D'Souza on, but that'll come at the end of the episode. But thanks for mentioning that, Jan. And before we move on, I'd like to thank one person in particular uh, Lee Smith, my dear friend, your dear friend, journalist, and host of the great show Over the Target on Epoch Times and Epoch TV. Thanks, Lee, for covering it. You're one of the best. Journalist in the country. I love your show and thank you and thank you, Jan, for allowing me to take a week off. And now we're back. Well, so
1: let's talk about some. You know, I think for everybody, it has to be disturbing news, which is basically, you know, I think Russia, Vladimir Putin, is uh, mobilizing 300,000 reservists reportedly and basically saying that the nuclear option is on the table if he feels threatened.
0: Yeah, that should just be one of the worst case scenarios anyone can ever imagine. Look, we followed this closely on the show up to Putin's invasion. And even I thought he didn't have the the gall to go in and do it. But what it showed me was the rise of Vladimir Putin's power on the world stage and how little he cares about an American response to retaliation or from a joint Western alliance response to retaliation. And what we've seen over the last, I don't know, six, eight months is Putin hanging out in Ukraine, causing death uh, murdering kids murdering adults murdering women in this ugly thing we call war which is constant there now and he comes in yesterday i think or the day before and says nuclear options are on the table that is a striking escalation it is the ultimate escalation there's nothing you can do past that and so I think it's a failure of American diplomacy and geopolitical navigating overseas that is partly responsible for Putin coming to the stage and making such a definitive statement that would literally cause the end of, if not the entire country, a part of it and massive swaths of a population because that's what a nuclear weapon is for. That's why it's called the end of days weapon. And so I really hope um, he's just conjecturing. but as a national security official, a former one, you know, hope is not a strategy. You know, what is this administration? What is the Biden administration's policy uh, to take this on and combat it and make sure that it never happens? What are our allies in Germany, in the UK and other West, France, what are they doing to combat it? And tragically you've seen other mishaps on the world stage. Most recently you heard from president Biden on a separate but sort of related issue. He was over in the UK paying his respects to the Queen, and rightfully so, and he was asked about Taiwan. And he said, what if China invades Taiwan? And President Biden, I'm paraphrasing here, basically said, we're going in. We, America, are going in.
1: U.S. forces, U.S. men and women, would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion.
0: Yes. And and the world was like, wait a second. Did you just change American policy from the last 50 years, vis-a-vis China and Taiwan, because that's never been our policy. And then the White House, of course, rolled it back and made ambiguous statements saying that's not what he meant. But you're the commander in chief. When President Trump made these types of statements definitively, he knew what he was saying, and he didn't have to have the White House clear it up. But you also have to remember there's Kim Jong-un in North Korea, who has nuclear weapons, supposedly. And he's been firing rockets off for the last... 16 months into the Sea of Japan on his, on his test flights. None of this has decreased. It has all been a constant escalation, um, threatening not just American security, but civilian lives in China, in the Ukraine, in Russia, in North and South Korea, in Japan, and so many other places. And the response has been muted if, if um, at, at best by the Biden administration. So... I don't know where it's going to go. I really don't, and it it cannot go to nuclear war. But we are just not in a position of strength anymore. There's a number of
1: voices out there that are, that are basically saying, "Well, actually, it was you know kind of Western aggression that precipitated this. Just you know, give Putin what he wants. He might just be crazy enough to to launch a nuke, um, and let let let's just get peace at any cost."
0: Well, it's not ours to give, right? You know, a piece of it is. The whole NATO alliance growth since the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union, right? You know, back then, quick history, we, the Western alliances, had promised the Soviet Union that fell that there would be no infringement, no new additions of NATO countries um, along the what was then known as the Iron Curtain. Fast forward 40-some years later, they have added the NATO alliance on that border, on that Iron Curtain, has added, I believe, and you can check me, half a dozen countries into the NATO alliance. So Putin's position, I don't agree with it, but Putin's position is, okay, you guys have spent 40 years violating an agreement, adding to NATO along our Russian border or in the area. And you're continuing to do so with talks of now adding Sweden and other countries into NATO. And from their perspective, they're like, you continue to break the agreements we had on an international front to end a conflict 30, 40 some years ago. So he now has justification in his mind to create a new conflict and escalated so much so that we're now talking about nuclear weapons. And that is a direct result of, I believe, the politicization of our American national security apparatus, which has severely weakened um, during President Biden's regime, because Look, you don't have to be a Trump fan to know it, but these types of things did not happen on the national security front during President Trump's presidency, whether it be Xi Jinping in China, Putin in uh, Russia, or Kim Jong-un in North Korea. Okay,
1: let, let me see if I understand you correctly. This is something that Ukraine has to decide, but of course there's this whole Western coalition, which is you know that Ukraine wouldn't have a defense without its
0: support, right? Right, and that's why that whole NATO discussion comes back into the fold. It's, it's not America singularly to um, defeat this escalation by Vladimir Putin. It's not like we can, we America can just hand him something and he'll say, okay, we're good. We'll go back. Mm. It's going to take a collaboration of the Western powers and the Ukraine because that's where the war is. And it's if, if that's the road they go down, it's gonna take some significant land concessions in the Ukraine that I just, you know, from my reading of what's been going on, I don't see the Ukrainian people willing to give up. So I don't think that it's going to be resolved in that diplomatic fashion because of what I said earlier too. We just don't have, we America don't have the global stance we used to have two, three years ago. the The WASTA, if you will, to come in there and say, This is how we're going to bring the Western alliance together. This is how we're going to take on Putin. This is how we're going to shut him down. And this is how, most importantly, we're going to get him off the nuclear weapons discussions.
1: So, no, you didn't think Putin was going to go in. I didn't think Putin was going to go in. Um, I don't think Putin is going to use nuclear (laughs) weapons. I don't know what you think, but... Uh, is this just bluster is this just a way to gain leverage because obviously it would be it seems like a pretty strong way to try to do that what is it um you know
0: i think he is playing his chess pieces better than the rest of the world right now in that region because a he doesn't care about russian casualties or russian soldier casualties it's not something that he's concerned with um he cares about his survival and at the, as the head of the Russian state. And so a lot of people back in Russia agree with him. A lot of people don't, but a lot of people do. I don't, I don't know that I have a definitive response today on whether or not he'll use nuclear weapons. As I said earlier, I hope not, but that's not a good strategy and being, having been wrong on the Ukraine invasion leads me to recalculate my answer to that question six, eight months ago I would have said, no, not possible at all. Now, unfortunately, I'm I have to think about that heavily and I don't have an exact answer. I, I unfortunately believe that Putin is serious about that threat, which is a in and of itself, a massive escalation on the global front and global security. Well and and you know deeply deeply troubling. Uh, I, we'll, we'll, we'll
1: have to be following this up as, as the show continues and as this whole situation continues over there. Well let's completely switch gears yeah. here and go back to kind of d- d- domestic realities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the the obvious things to comment on we started talking about uh, uh, last week the, the special master appointment. Yeah. Um, classification issues. What are your thoughts?
0: I don't think this is going to take too much time. To, to roll through because there's not too many developments. A, a special master was appointed. And B, he had, he, Judge Deary, I believe, in, in New York, convene the lawyers for both sides for the first time. And as a result of that, the public learned a couple of things. One, it looks like it's going to take till around November 30th for the special master to just get through reviewing the documents. And which is what we said on earlier episodes, I say this is a process that's going to take months. And now that's over two months away just for the review. Um, he also, Judge Deary, made some tests, some statements during the public hearing that he just held. And I think the one thing of note here is that he said, I, Judge Deary, at this time, don't feel the need to have to review classified information just yet. Prudentially speaking, that's the right course of action. But when you look at what we've talked about in terms of corruption at the FBI and DOJ, I would have hoped he would look at everything right away. Now, he hasn't said he won't. He's just taking it in a measured approach. And I think maybe that's why so many people respect him. Now, we never talked about Judge Deary and the selection of him as special master in and of itself. I probably would have gone a different way. Judge Deary is one of the FISA court judges that signed a surveillance warrant against President Trump, which turned out to be an unlawful surveillance based on the investigation I led with Devin Nunes. Um, at the House Intelligence Committee. So this can go one of two ways. I've heard a lot of people on TV say, great selection, because he has a chance to fix his wrongs. Well, maybe, you know, a federal court judge doesn't like being told he got something wrong, but of course a federal court judge also doesn't like being lied to. So hopefully he has that information in hand when he's making these decisions and the same FBI and DOJ uh, actors are presenting him with their, you know, quote-unquote, definitive positions, and that everything was done above board, when he has been the victim, if you want to put it that way, of an FBI and DOJ corruption, which led to an unlawful surveillance of a president and presidential candidate. And I remind our audience, as a result of our investigation, two of those first four search warrants um, were completely revoked by the Department of Justice. Now, Devin Nunes and I did send on behalf of the House Intel Committee way back when we found these errors, an extensive memo to the FISA court detailing our findings. And at the time, these FISA court judges wouldn't even respond to us or just said, go talk to DOJ. And so I'm disheartened um, that these judges back then wouldn't listen to our fact-based findings. And now you have one of these judges who is in charge as special master. I don't know if I would have gone that way, Jan, but um, he seems to be taking a methodical and prudential approach based on his public statements um, from this week's hearing.
1: So something else that we'll keep following, uh, you know, no doubt, as it continues. It seems it'll be it'll be some months of process here. Um, you know, on on a related note, it, there is this new uh, prosecution of the Trump family by the New York Attorney General. Um, what are your thoughts?
0: Uh, I have a lot. Um, my problem with an estate attorney general or any law enforcement officer, and as the attorney general, you're the number one law enforcement officer of that state at the state level, is Letitia James campaigned on this for four years. She said President Trump was an Ill- illegitimate president before she was ever in office. She ran on that. She further went on to say and promised the electorate that she would sue and bring charges against Donald Trump, having never investigated him. Talk about... A conclusion, or putting the cart before the horse, she was politicizing uh, law enforcement by saying, "I'm going to get you," and now all you know, the rest of the family. But I haven't looked at anything. That, that to me, as a former federal prosecutor and a public defender, is shocking. And you know, maybe ten years ago, I would have expected the left to come out and say, "How can you make such a statement when you haven't looked at any of the evidence?" And now fast forward, what she's done is say, okay, I'm filing a civil suit. We all know the gymnastics and the amount of time and energy she expends trying to bring criminal charges, but couldn't. And just to put a caveat on that for our audience, you know, generally when you are unable, your primary choice as an attorney general or a prosecutor is you bring criminal charges. If you can prove there was criminal conduct. Seems to me she failed on that front because the evidence didn't support it. So what's your secondary option? Civil suit. And what does that mean? Money. And so now she's saying people in Trump world were corrupt and you, Trump world, have to pay hundreds of millions of dollars. I don't think that case is getting settled anytime soon. You know, I think President Trump will probably fight it, but I think it is another, another example of the politicization of our law enforcement. It's another version to me of how are we going to get Trump now. And this seems to be New York's state attorney general's way of doing it. So
1: before we jump to talking about these you know, whistleblower allegations mm-hmm. from the Judiciary Committees, um, I just want to briefly talk about the Danchenko case. This is what we obviously yeah. talked with Lee about uh, last week. And you know, so there, there's this very interesting motion about the ma- materiality
0: <laughs>
1: of basically this uh, Danchenko being investigated in a counterintelligence investigation some you know ten years prior. What relevance does this have? I guess that's the that, that's the question. Why are we litigating that?
0: So the, the motions in which we'll put up for our audience to see and links to see it are filed by John Durham and Denchenko's defense counsels. And as we've discussed on earlier episodes, probably some months ago, these are pretrial motions. John Durham saying, I've got evidence I want to use. We call it quote unquote prior bad acts information or evidence of the defendant, The prosecution is saying, did other things wrong in his past. And we want to introduce that in our case in chief to the jury. The rules of evidence don't allow you to just stand up in court on day one and say, they did X, Y, and Z five years ago. You have to follow the rules of evidence, file these pleadings. So that's the mechanics of it. And you have
1: to kind of prove that it makes sense, that it's relevant, basically. Well, yeah, yeah, right. You have
0: to show what the rules of evidence require. And in this case, they require materiality, as you said. And of course, it always has to be relevant. And it has to be more probative than prejudicial, as we say. Um, That means that it provides more evidence that the jury uh, can use to make a determination rather than just inflame them. And so, look, for me... This is one of the most shocking findings that John Durham has, has put out. And I, you're talking about the guy that did the Russiagate investigation with Devin Nunes that figured out Christopher Steele was a paid asset of the DNC and the Hillary Clinton campaign. But not only that, he got paid by the FBI as a paid informant to produce false information to hijack a law enforcement agency and lie to a federal court to unlawfully surveil a presidential candidate. As if that weren't bad enough, and I've said this before, Danchenko is like the new version of Christopher Steele. But what we didn't know, what is actually breaking, exploding news, is Danchenko is a paid, or was, a paid informant for this FBI. Danchenko's history is he was hired by Fiona Hill at Brookings Institute to be a research assistant. Fiona Hill, Who knows Christopher Steele and introduced him to the whole uh, uh, parade of characters, including Bruce Orr and folks at DOJ, hired Danchenko, Christopher Steele's source, to be a research assistant. Then, shortly after that, the FBI comes in and says, hey, not to the public, we are investigating Danchenko. What were they investigating him for around circa 2009-10? Do you know, Jan? It's crazy basically trying to buy classified information and sell it to a foreign government. This guy that's now charged by John Durham some 10-plus years later, who was Fiona Hill's research assistant, and I believe it's no coincidence that Fiona Hill knows both Danchenko and Christopher Steele, and the likes of Charles Dolan and Fusion GPS. I've always called on her, the need for her to be investigated by both Congress and the DOJ for her involvement um, in the biggest government criminal conspiracy in U.S. history. Danchenko, it was some point determined by the FBI after two years of investigating, we're not going to bring a charge. So what do they do? After Christopher Steele gets terminated by the FBI as a source during the Russiagate investigation. Because what did Christopher Steele do? He lied to the FBI and he, and he went out and talked to the media can't do that if you're a source. They fired him. As if it wasn't enough corrupt activity to bring in Bruce Orr, a high-level DOJ prosecutor, to be the Steele cutout so that the FBI could continue to get the information that Steele was producing, even though they fired him, they hired Danchenko. Danchenko was Christopher Steele's source. Now we know that. We didn't know that at the time of the Steele dossier. So while the same time they're using a DOJ prosecutor cutout, the FBI comes in fires one source, and hires his source to funnel false information. So now this guy's on the government payroll for the three, four years we were looking at Russiagate, and no one told us about this stuff. We sent congressional subpoenas out. We asked not just for Steele's involvement in this, but any and all informants. And we weren't told about this. And thankfully, John Durham has figured this out. But now you have even less confidence in our FBI, because Christopher Ray was supposed to expose this corruption. He should have said in day one, four years ago, after Steele got fired, well, we also had this guy, we're not going to hire him. And we should have prosecuted him years ago. And so thankfully John Durham is taking the right approach, I think, methodically to lay that out for the public to see as we've done in these earrings, uh, excuse me, in these pleadings. But to answer your question, what he John Durham wants to do ultimately is say Danchenko Yes, he was a paid informant who was fired by the FBI also. But more importantly, he wants to tell the jury that Danchenko did things that were borderline criminal in terms of his actions right after he left Brookings Institute, or maybe while he was there, about trying to acquire classified information and sell it, which is illegal. So, you know, when you're talking about the main sources that stood up the biggest criminal conspiracy in U.S. history and the the DOJ and FBI were in on it, with a political ally in the DNC, um, it's going to be very hard for the American public to regain any trust in the DOJ and FBI. And I'm the guy that's still out there saying, we need one, we need a DOJ, we need an FBI. And I get, I get a lot of flack for that because people wanna completely do away with it. And I said, no, we have to completely fix it. Maybe this is step one, maybe the world will finally pay attention, um, but we're just gonna have to wait and see. I think that trial begins in, I think two or three weeks. You know, one of the thing that just sort of jumps to my mind,
1: if I recall correctly, that investigation on Danchenko was closed because they thought he had left the country, but he actually hadn't. Like they kind of erroneously somehow made that determination. Do you, do you recall this?
0: Uh, I, now that you mention it, it, it's it's stunning that the FBI couldn't figure that out. If that's the case, I I, I do recall reading this now, but how, they are investigating him for a very severe counterintelligence crime and they close the investigation because they lose him. But it turns out he was in America the whole time. The whole time he was providing Christopher Steele the information um, for his bogus dossier. This guy, Danchenko, was still in the country and then they decided to pay him. But it's not like, here's the thing that, it's also bothersome. It's not like when they found him, they said, okay, we're going to pick up our investigation again. They said, no, we're going to pay you we're going to do the exact opposite. We need you so bad to make up more information and fake dirt so we can continue to politicize the FBI and DOJ that we're going to give you money from American taxpayers. Um, And what they should have done is said, we're going to continue our investigation into you and bring prosecutorial charges.
1: You know, one of the things we discussed with Lee was that once someone does become a confidential human source, they're basically you know, shielded in all sorts of ways, perhaps from congressional subpoenas of the sorts that that you attempted to put out. So, you know, some people have suggested, and I, we talked about this in, on the last show, that that that's actually part of the idea behind making someone a confidential human source. If they have things that you want to hide, you can kind of use that designation.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and, they, and we prove that that's what they did with Steele during Russiagate. And it seems to be that's what it's, it's now proven that's, that's exactly what they did with Denchenko in Russiagate and beyond. And because now the FBI can come into a congressional subpoena and especially when the majority flips, which they know is happening come November. Oh, no, this is related to sources and methods. And they'll, and they'll bandy out that infamous line that says you are jeopardizing national security by asking for this information. People are going to die. And they tried that with us. And as a national security prosecutor said, no, there's a way to do this correctly and lawfully and ethically. So show us the documentation and then we will release what's appropriate. And we did that. No one died. No relationship was ruined. No source was jeopardized, but they will say that to cover up their corruption. And there's a specific federal court case that speaks to that. The FBI and DOJ are not permitted to cover up or mask information to hide their own corruption. And that's exactly what I believe they're doing here. And John Durham caught him.
1: Well, so this is the perfect moment to talk about whistle FBI whistleblowers, <laughs> yeah, <right>. I suppose, <laughs> yeah. right? So no, and there's, there's these two letters that have come out, one from Senate Judiciary, one from House Judiciary. In the case of the Grassley letter to, to the FBI director, I, he had this question that he asked, and the question was, there was a, you know, a committee of field agents that basically said, it looks to me like there's politicization happening in, in investigations, mm-hmm. and somehow this got st- never appeared in the report it was supposed to appear in. Grassley's asking about it, and uh, I guess he's asking about it again.
0: Yeah, so what happens is after uh, a director like Chris Ray testifies, they do QFRs, questions for the records, follow-ups, right? And the senator or congressman or woman sends them in officially on on letterhead and says, answer these follow-up questions, which you, Chris Ray, agreed to answer. And what Grassley's saying is six some weeks later and there's been no response from the FBI. Not surprising. What we have learned is there's not just been one whistleblower. It's been scores of whistleblowers have come forward to make these claims, to make these allegations. And to me, they seem very credible. And what it shows is that the FBI has been completely politicized. And what Senator Grassley is saying, I want to get to the bottom of this. Are you telling me the FBI had a group that was created to monitor um, field level agents' activity and sort of grab grab the pulse of what was going on, and instead of doing that, you used it as a political uh, cudgel? to stomp out certain investigations or allow others to proceed. That's what Senator Grassley is investigating. It's pretty damning information to come from not one, but multiple FBI whistleblowers. And, you know, what's disturbing is that they are being retaliated against. But there's a specific Whistleblower Protection Act, a statute on the books for federal law that says you cannot, no agency can um, retaliate in any way, shape or form against any whistleblower that comes forward to expose fraud, waste and abuse or criminality. And so, you know, we got to this one we're going to stay on for sure, because if that's the case, um, boy, Chris Ray is going to have a really difficult uh, winter come the change of gavels. Well, and so let's
1: just look at this other letter that came from Jim Jordan. I mean, basically, the the whistleblower allegations, again, if I've got this right, are that, you know, there are investigations that are ostensibly being run out of various field offices, Mm -hmm. but actually the Washington field office is holding the reins. People are saying, I'm listed as running this investigation, but actually these people from Washington field office are running it, Um, that that seems like a big deal.
0: That's a big deal, and we'll get to that in a second. What the letter also says, which we'll put out for our audience, is they, the FBI, are using this system you just described to pad falsely the statistics for domestic violent extremism and tie it to January 6th. Now you have multiple FBI agents who have come to Congressman Jim Jordan's office and said, unrelated to what we were talking about with Senator Grassley and his whistleblowers, Congressman Jordan has his own set, that are saying, I, as the special agent who was supposed to be assigned to Case X, found out that my name had been taken from Case X and put on Case Y, submitted to the Washington DC field office, remove the case from the field-level agents without their knowledge and use to say there is more domestic violent extremism, especially as it relates to the activities of January 6th. Talk about cooking the books for the FBI. It is a shocking development from whistleblowers. And just to be clear, you're basically saying, these agents are
1: saying that, you know, they would never have classified it this way, but it's being classified this way, ostensibly, from their, through their mouths or through their- Yeah, and I, yeah. since we
0: talk about classified information, I would use a different term here. I don't believe this information is classified. I think it's just being segregated. Um, this information is, is being taken from certain field agents, hijacked almost, and plopped down to the Washington behemoth. And what they're saying is politics took those investigations and falsely labeled them domestic violence extremism so that the FBI could come out and Christopher Ray could go and testify before Congress and say, domestic violence extremism is up, especially when it relates to January 6th, based upon our findings. What these whistleblowers are saying is that's totally false. And what's even more disturbing is if that weren't enough. In Jim Jordan's letter, he writes that these whistleblowers have now come forward and said the way the structure's been set up Because you have taken the authority from the field-level agents and improperly placed it in the Washington behemoth, the field-level agents and the FBI mothership are no longer focusing on crimes that they should be. And one in particular that he labels, child sex offenses. Jim Jordan actually labels that the FBI pursuant to the whistleblowers that he's talking to are no longer focusing as a primary criminal uh, investigation, child sex offenses, because this behemoth, this machine that they've created to manufacture false information for disinformation campaign purposes that's being perpetuated by Chris Ray as the head of the FBI, is forgetting to do the field level work. And that's what the agents are saying. I want to get back to, as we always used to say, cops and robbers. Let us go back and prosecute those who commit crimes of violence, crimes against children, murders, bank robberies, frauds, and things like that. But because all of the agents, information is wrongfully being taken and the agents are being removed from these cases and then washington just like they did in hillary clinton's email investigation just like they did in the hunter and laptop case just like they did in russiagate and so many others have hijacked this information and are using it for a false narrative and that is why i've always called for the disbanding of the Washington headquarter behemoth that is the FBI. I'm not saying it's annihilation. I'm saying those agents need to go back into the field. And to me, this is the best level of proof I've ever seen. When you have field agents coming forward by the dozens saying the same exact thing, that we want to do the work we signed up for and our leadership in Washington DC is politicizing it and giving the American people false narrative. And if that's true, sounds like it is, Chris Ray has a lot of answering to do under oath um, about why he allowed this to occur on his watch and why he's not answering the questions of Senator Grassley and Congressman Jordan. Now that will likely switch once the gavel switch, but right now he knows he can ignore them. And as we've seen from the reporting, it has been a deafening silence from Senator Grassley's request for more information, and of course, Mr. Mr. Jordan's request just came in more recently, but. I don't believe the FBI will be responding to that either. Cash, it's time for our shout-out. It is, Jan, but if you'll indulge me, before we get to this week's shout-out, I want to talk a little bit more about my book, my new book, The Plot Against the King, 2,000 Mules. With, in collaboration with Dinesh D'Souza and his documentary, 2,000 Mules, We have brought to you the sequel to The Plot Against the King, which talks about Russiagate. And in this book, Plot Against the King, 2000 Mules, Dinesh and I talk to the world about election integrity. And we want to stress that it's not a book about politics and saying you should be a conservative or Republican or Democrat or liberal. It's our mission to educate our children to do what's right. Truth and the the mission comes first. And we want everyone, not just kids, but adults across the country to get it. So if you wanna support us, go to plotagainsttheking.com. You can pick up one copy, two copies, both books today. I'm even signing them, plotagainsttheking.com. And so this week's special shout out goes to our friend Lee Smith, as we talked about at the beginning of the show. And talk about things coming full circle. Lee Smith is the guru of Russiagate and The Plot Against the President, which you haven't read that book, you must read it ASAP. And he was my inspiration for my books, my series called The Plot Against the King. So Lee, thanks so much to you. Our audience, thank you so much for the live chats every Friday night and for posting on our board. Please continue to do that. And we'll see you next week on Cash's Corner.